I'm Andrew O'Hagan, host of a new podcast from the London Review of Books. It's about the bloodiest and most controversial event of the Falklands War, the sinking of the General Belgrano. Margaret Thatcher was accused of a war crime. The truth would only emerge in the pages of a private diary. This is the Belgrano Diary. Listen wherever you get your podcasts. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Welcome to the London Review Bookshop. I thought that I would... Um, <laughs> devote most of my contribution this evening to um, a, a few readings from the book to, to try to establish, as, as has been indicated, that um, even though atheism is, is a reasonable worldview, in, in my opinion, that um, religious belief in general, and Christianity in particular, are, are more um, seaworthy than assumed by, by many of religions culture despises. And um, I'd like to start with a, with a very important point which was um, uh, underscored by, by Rowan in, in his extremely generous uh, review of the book in, in Saturday's Guardian. And it, it centres on, on the question of whether, um, whether people are even aware of, of, of the ground on which they disagree. If, if one of my colleagues says that she loves sushi, and I say that I hate sushi, then at least we're agreed on what we disagree about. Um, if only things were so clear in the um, theism atheism debate. Um, secularisation may have gone into reverse in many parts of the world. It's becoming increasingly... Um, fashionable, if not de rigueur, to, to point out that um, whereas in an earlier generation there was a kind of assumption that people would grow out of religion and become more and more secular. The truth these days is that Western Europe, if anything, is, is the exception to the rule that Christianity and Islam are by far the most formidable belief systems on earth. Both are, are growing strongly. And that if anything... It's the removal of shackles that has encouraged this trend. Think of, think of India, think of Egypt, think of um, Turkey, where you had a, a sort of first generation of um, uh, secularist leaders uh, early in the, um, earlier in the 20th century who, who tried to impose a secularist vision from, from above. And um, uh, th this can have very tragic consequences. I'm thinking particularly about um, Algeria, where, where the, the will of the people was, was flouted when they, they voted for an Islamist government. Um, there, there are a few jokes in my book. I, I wish 
I put in one, one or two more, and um, one, one um, relates to a, a translation of Shakespeare. This is apparently not apocryphal, um, and it relates to a line in Act Two of As You Like It, where, where the Duke um, talks of uh, books in running brooks, sermons in stone, and good in everything. Books in running brooks, sermons in stone, and a a German translator of Shakespeare um, realised that the bard was in a model and that he needed to be corrected in the German edition and so changed it to, to stone in running brooks, sermons in books. <laughs> Look on Sam Harris's website. Uh, he locked horns recently with, with Andrew Sullivan, the, the Catholic uh, journalist, about the, the meaning of scripture. The effect that you get from, from reading that is that Sam Harris, sometimes known as one of the four horsemen of the, the new atheism, along with Dawkins, Demet, and, and, and Crystal Hitchens, Sam Harris is, is a very intelligent man, very, very vigorous, if sometimes over-assertive, debater. But at the end of the day, he, he, he just doesn't get it. It's like being... Um, Colourblind, I think, and, and I, I, that, that's really what I I feel about a, a lot of the, the 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 really vehement writers in this regard. But of course, they they are they are in a minority, um, and there is also a um, a, a great um, strand of opinion in in Western Europe and, and North America. That's, that's simply a little bit sneery. That those of you who read the Sunday Times might have seen India Knight's column um, just two days ago, and she says, one of the most unattractive aspects of 21st century life is the way it is considered acceptable to sneer slightly at practising Christians. It's never a great snarling sneer, unless you're Richard Dawkins or one of his disciples, because that whole scene is, of course, a religion in itself and quite a creepy one. But it's an eye roll, a stifled smirk, a sort of bafflement at the idea that someone who is apparently like us, rather than glaringly besmocked and besandled, should choose to spend Sunday morning celebrating the, the intangible. You, 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 get the, um, you get the picture. And at the start of my book, I, I instance a few um, examples of... That, that kind of um, sneering, notably Brian Appleyard um, talking about the novels of Marilyn Robinson and saying um, even though these are bestsellers and Marilyn Robinson is a highly respected novelist um, nonetheless many people in the UK may view her, her, her books with Amusement, because what, what's going on here is religion, and religion has been embarrassed out of, out of existence. Anthony Green, the, the um, artist, says that, uh, in, said in a recent BBC interview, that an interest in religious themes can be the kiss of death to an, an artist's career. So, so you, you, you get the, the picture, and um, one of the things I want to say in, in the first chapter, when I'm, I'm just um, clearing the ground a bit, is that a Christian response to the new atheism should make clear, among, among much else, that the, that the creator represented in orthodox 
teaching is not a thing or any part of reality as we understand it. Um, the theologian Herbert McCabe had a, a tart rejoinder to those who imagine that you can add God and the universe together and make two. Two what? He asked. Divinity and creaturehood are too different to be opposites. They don't occupy any kind of common scale. And so for, for a figure of the classical tradition like Thomas Aquinas, faith does not rest on supernatural awareness of ethereal entities in the way that so many atheists often suppose, you know, your friend up in the sky kind of thing. Um, as somebody else um, connected with the Dominican order, I, I became close to Timothy McDermott, the uh, co-dedicatee of this book, put it, even, even our virtue is not directly perceptible to us. It is part of our interpretation of the world we perceive with our senses. So Aquinas was not concerned with some enchanted world beyond science's powers of disenchantment. Um, he was interested um, rather in, in pressing more and more deeply into a scientific account of the natural. For already in that world there were things which only his religion would be able to explain. When David Cameron says that his spiritual sense is a little bit like the reception for Magic FM in the Chilterns, that's to say that it comes and goes, I think St Thomas Aquinas might have um, scratched his chin a bit and said, it's not really about pleasant feelings which come and go. It's rather a matter of sheer awe in the face of the fact that anything exists at all and thinking that this, this requires a, a different level of, of explanation altogether. Um, I, wouldn't, um, I wouldn't want you to think that I take an uncritical line towards Christianity in, in this book. I'm, I'm very glad that, that several of the people who kindly provided jacket endorsements mentioned that my, my fire is trained on the misguided literalism of some Christian fundamentalists as, as well as on the, um, the, the misconceptions of the, the new atheists. And in... Um, uh, in, in um, the second chapter, which is also reasonably short, and, and where I, I just try to trace the outline of a, of a Christian worldview um, before, uh, so that I hope people won't be too put off before I get into to rather more, more technical matters. And I, I want to say that, that many, many um, figures in the classical tradition would, would have said that a balance needed to be struck between um, twin vices of, of too much religion and, and too little. Now, okay, aggressive secularism may stand in, in the, the latter camp, but fundamentalism, what would have been called in an earlier generation superstition, um, belongs in with, with the first of these vices. And I, I want to say the church is not incapable of error. Its representatives can easily make statements going far beyond the basic natural perception of the mystery of existence. Such statements can lead to mistakes, conflict and other evils, including the idolisation of community identities. So in certain respects, the history of religion 
maps onto the entire social history of humanity. One implication of this is that religious leaders, in my view, function better as sources of influence at some distance from political leaders, not as wielders of, of direct power themselves. <clears throat> Correspondingly, while faith groups should be allowed to express their views on the issues of the day, they should not undermine the, the democratic process. Um, I also try to just changing the changing gear a little in this this second chapter um, to say um, something about the the importance of of Jesus. So I, I was speaking to somebody extremely important, influential within the, uh, the the company I work for this afternoon, News UK, somebody with tens of thousands of followers on, on Twitter, somebody really in a, a position to, to make a difference. And he, he said, to my mind rather glibly, well, of, of course, the, the historical foundation of Christianity is, is very shallow, isn't it? And I said, um, no, actually, I don't think it is. And the synoptic gospels, Matthew, Mark and Luke, overall, for all their theological sophistication, provide a, a, a generally trustworthy account of, of Jesus' ministry. So why, why, um, why was he so important? And I suggest that, that one summary of his message might run like this, that in common with other rabbis, he, exp he expounded scripture, in, enjoined his hearers to observe the central elements of Jewish law, emphasised God's love for the outcast. More remarkable was his absolute renunciation of violence and insistence on self-giving love as the supreme virtue. He proclaimed the arrival of the kingdom of God, with all that it entailed in terms of the espousal of the poor and the weak, the casting out of evil spirits, and the release of those resources of generosity and compassion, which are so easily deflected by social convention and spiritual legalism. This mission led to Jesus' death, which he accepted, sensing that his crucifixion and subsequent vindication by God would have redemptive power for the community of believers he inaugurated. <clears throat> he believed this because he made one especially audacious claim from the start of his ministry, that the question how people relate to him and to what he says will govern how they relate to the God he addressed as Father. Um, it's um, been my great privilege to be to be taught by Ron Williams as, as well as to, to have written a couple of biographical studies of him and, and this is a, a model that I have picked up from him um, in, in an enormous thicket there's so there's, there's such a, a, a vast quantity of New Testament scholarship I think he, even Christians can sometimes miss that the word, the word for the trees. So on, on the understanding that I've just sketched, Jesus was acting like the creator who chose Israel at the dawn of the biblical narrative. God had chosen a group of slaves to be a people. And Jesus, in selecting his fishermen, tax collectors and prostitutes, was repeating and re-embodying this choice. He was claiming a level of creative freedom for himself usually associated with God alone. And um, one of the striking things about that is that it's, it's precisely some of the most Jewish elements in the Gospels that make that, that clear. Christian experience was distilled 
from the experience of prayer and communal life over generations, and the teaching in a nutshell that emerged in the New Testament and the early church holds that through Jesus' death and resurrection, a new phase in history has been inaugurated. Human beings discover their destiny in an orientation towards the source of their being. This is not the orientation of a slave to a master, but the intimate relationship of a son or daughter to a parent. In that relationship, the Christian can become free to imitate the self-giving of God, the Trinity itself, understood by, by Christianity as a pattern of loving relationship. God, the Trinity, who made us and saved us. The church is the community on earth representing this new creation. Its chief task is to proclaim and witness to God's will for universal reconciliation. Now, I see the times cracking on, but I, I, um, I do want to say a little bit more, if, if you'll forgive me about philosophical questions, because there, there's been a lot of what I would see as rather loose talk about how um, the universe could have made itself. And Richard Dawkins's um, intellectual beard is a, or at least somebody um, cited, prayed and aid by him in, in debates on a number of occasions, is, is Lawrence Krauss, the, the um, American theoretical physicist who, who has written a book with what I would view as a, as a hubristic title, A Universe from Nothing. And um, when, when you look at his argument closely, uh, first of all, he assumes the, the prior existence of a quantum vacuum. And he does use the word nothing in various senses. One, one um, a friend of mine, Andrew Davison at Cambridge, who, who lectures on science and religion, told me that he, he, he thinks that um, Krauss is, is uh, rather stronger on the physics and on the philosophy, shall we say. Because if, if nothing is productive in some sense, then it's, it's, not, it's not really nothing. And science can talk about how one state of affairs gives rise to to another, but that, that isn't really the, the Christian understanding, the orthodox understanding. Um, and I, I write in, in the third chapter that we need to distinguish between cause seen as natural change and cause in the sense of an ultimate bringing into being of something from no antecedent state whatsoever. To be the complete cause of the existence of something is not the same as producing a change in it. In Thomas' times, God did not create the universe out of quote-unquote something. That, that, is, that is a point of, of deepest importance. God did not create the universe out of something. That is why creation from nothing, creatio ex, ex nihilo, involves a relationship of radical dependency for our, for our existence right now would be impossible without the sustaining power of God, even though nature, of course, possesses its own integrity. Um, so um, a, a scholar I, I, I quote at this point says, God causes natural things to be in such a way that they work 
the way that they do. Hippopotamuses give live birth because that is the sort of thing they are. Why are there such things as hippo hippopotamuses? Well, nature produced them in some way. What way did nature produce them? And why does nature produce things in this way? It's because God made the whole of nature to operate in this way and to produce by her own agency what, what she produces. Thus, God remains completely responsible for the being and operation of everything, even though natural beings possess real agency according to the way that they create it. So the, the picture here is of um, what's known technically as primary and secondary causality, as, as the... As the canvas supports the picture or the minstrel supports the tune, God is, is responsible for holding everything and being at any given time. But nature, um, nature still has its own integrity. Um, now, I hope, I hope the discussion hasn't been too, too, too dry so far. I... I um, I've benefited a great deal from a philosopher like John Cottingham, who, who had a very analytic background and who came to religion, I believe, rather slowly and, and became a, a Roman Catholic about 10 or 15 years ago. And I think that there are, there are other strands of philosophy that are really important, not, um, not in the sense of providing a... A, a watertight argument. I, I don't think science, in the end, can produce an argument for God. I think that we can we can look at, at our our experience in, in in the round as conscious beings, truth um, truth discovering beings, um, and look at, at, at other other aspects of our lives, what, what's known as normativity, for example, the belief in the objectivity of, of morals, and conclude that the cosmos is, is hospitable to a theistic interpretation. And maybe from, from this slightly different cluster of arguments, one, one might deduce a, a, a threefold argument. If, if you wanted something to take away, I, I think I, I would offer the following, that an awareness of ourselves as embodied beings with the capacity to grasp meaning and truth is very suggestive. Second, that this might lead to the process of seeing our status as a gift, prompting awe, gratitude, and a heightened sense of ethical awareness. And third, an acknowledgement of that gift as grounded in a reality that freely bestows itself to us. Um, but although I want to round off in a, in a second, um, I can't stop there because um, Rowan is not the only theologian to, to have um, taught me that Christians worship a God who doesn't just answer our questions, but who, who questions our answers. And for all the, the great deal I've, I've learned from, from the, the um, wonderful people I've engaged with and, and quoted in, in my book, it's, it, it, it's hugely important to 
be clear about the the, the limits of um, arguments from reason, intellectual arguments. They're, they're very, very important, but ultimately you don't um, think your way into a new way of living. You, you live your way into a new way of thinking, as I, I said. Uh, I, I said at the start of the second chapter, and, and religion is, is really about doing things that change you, ultimately. And uh, the um, indispensable uh, point to make alongside that is that everything I've said this evening, and what I say in the book, um, derives from what I believe to be the action and initiative of God, um, rather than because I have massive confidence in, in um, unaided human resources. And those of us who are Christians, and maybe those of us who aren't, should never forget that the New Testament does rather stand all sorts of assumptions about religion on their head, um, Christians worship a God who took off his crown to, to come among us and, and, and share our, our flesh. And, and of course, that, um, that's the most important game changer of all. Um, I hope I haven't outstayed my welcome. Thank you very much for your patience. It's an enormous privilege and delight to be able to be here to respond in person to this um, excellent book. And what I'd like to do to start the ball rolling is mention one or two things which might open up some further discussion and put one question. Two things which um, I'm most welcome in the book these. First of all, as you've already heard, the model that Rupert outlines, and not just Rupert, but quite a few other people like St. Augustine's and Thomas and you know, <laughs> other eccentric foreigners like that, the model outlined is of a relationship between God and our reality, which is not competitive. In other words, they're not battling over the same space. If we all left this shop, there wouldn't be more of God in it. Well, think about that. <laughs> in the sense that we would not have to vacate any space for God to be there. Now, that may sound very basic, but it actually affects a huge range of questions about our theology and our practice. Because a good deal of religious language and practice, unfortunately, does sliver back towards the idea, the more us, the less God, or the more God, the less us. So if you want to become more human, then you have to throw off the shackles of faith. If you want to become a true servant of God, you have to cut the throat of your own humanity. And the picture here, which is you know, it's not some kind of 21st century invention, the picture here represents that intellectually and spiritually very powerful and coherent tradition that says you're simply not talking about rival entities. And if I can trailer coat here, one of the things I've been trying to work on recently is how what we believe about the life of Jesus is to be like a kind of key that unlocks that, that understanding. So that's one thing I really welcome 
The other thing, well, of many things, but the other thing I want to note here is the point Rupert made at the end. We inherit culturally at the moment a model of what it is like really to know something, which is in fact fantastically thin and parched. Real knowledge is problem-solving knowledge. Real knowledge is the knowledge of particulars, etc., etc. Real knowledge is based on a particular sort of evidence. And some of you may know Ian McGilchrist's wonderful book, The Master and His Emissary, on the um, different activities of the brain. And that is a fairly substantial shot across the bows of any attempt to reduce our cognitive capacity, the cognitive capacity of the brain, simply to one dimension. And to talk about living your way into thinking, once again, not an eccentric um, modern invention, but something that genuinely represents an acknowledgement that what we mean by knowing is in fact very varied. Just ask yourself how the, how the language is used. So that claims about religious knowledge are not outliers, exceptions. They are bound in with what we might say robustly, defensively, and consistently about the whole process of human knowing. But here's my question, Rupert. And in a nutshell, it's this. What went wrong? Because we have this colossally sophisticated and imaginative and rich theological-philosophical tradition. And yet, as modernity has advanced, it's not just that non-religious critics have sniped away or tunneled away foundations. It's also that a lot of religious language has allowed itself to become increasingly thin and hard. It doesn't the way that what's that what, what went wrong? Uh, many of you will know the, the, the old... Um, uh, barrister's adage, never ask a question that you, that you don't know the answer to. Um, uh, something that, that Rowan is modestly uh, overlooking uh, is that uh, he, you are a, a father of the, the radical orthodoxy movement and, and um, whether you endorse um, every last jot and tittle of it, it's um, uh, particularly associated with, with John Milbank, the very brilliant theologian at, at Nottingham University. Um, a, a core part of his thesis is, is that the doctrine of God went badly wrong sometime during the um, Renaissance, where, where um, for a, um, a complicated set of, of reasons, God um, came to be conceived as a, as, a, as a great big powerful creature on the opposite end of the scale from a um, from a particle and um, I think there are some intellectual historians particularly with, with Catholic leanings who would say that the um, Reformation wasn't fantastically helpful in, in this regard and um, I mean just being being sort of less um, uh, less grand in, in my sweep um Talking about this country, I mean, for, for, all, for all its virtues, Anglicanism is a tradition that hasn't really had 
too much of a, an interest in, in systematic theology. It's been rather more pragmatic in outlook, and it's it's um, it's great to see um, a change in that. To see that, particularly over the past few decades, actually Anglican theologians um, <coughs> have been among the most creative in, in the, the Christian world. So. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Life is full of awesome what-ifs, and some not so much, like unexpected medical costs. That's why United Healthcare provides Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans to supplement your primary plan and help manage out-of-pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com. Um... Thinking around them a little bit here, I think maybe the the institutional status of Christianity, the power of the church, didn't do. You know, heavens above, read some St James Joyce, and you see the fear of God being put into Catholic children in um, Fundesiepa Island. Um, I mean, the only the only thing I'd add is it's not that we've become all liberal and cuddly now. Thing. Well, maybe we have a bit, but also we've we we have rediscovered things that have uh, have been hidden. Um, so it's it's a matter of of burrowing down, and and this this is a, a style of theology that that uh, Rowan is very much associated with to, to find riches in the tradition that can that sort of nourish contemporary. Discussion. So, um, in in a nutshell, the answer to bad theology is good theology, not not bad theology at all. Yes, yes. Um, um, thank you for your generous remarks about Anglicanism finding its theological self. <laughs> um, but I think that that does raise, doesn't it, the, the quite broad question about the self-critical dimension of religion. This interests me a lot because it seems to me that one of the things which is most interesting about, let's just say, Christian religious practice and language, is that it's constantly saying, damn, haven't got it. But not quite. You know, that it, it wrestles. It doesn't simply sit back and say, well, a lot of very interesting propositions have dropped from heaven and we can now be sure about them. It says, forgive me, how the hell are you to talk about this? Here is something so baffling um, and difficult enormous and demanding that we're going to need rather more resources than we usually have around to work with. And I think that constant tussling with how we talk is one of the things which tells us that the faith makes claims about reality. It's not just how I feel, but about more than that. And that's not to say that we're incapable of saying true things. But saying true things is very hard work. And a true thing may still leave a 
trail of a difficulty which will keep you, causing keep you working. So the idea that on the one hand you have a perfectly rational set of methods which you can apply to solve all the major problems of the universe, and on the other you have a static dogmatism is, is a myth that needs dismantling if we're going to have any sort of interesting discussion between believers and non-believers. <laughs> Um, I think the least I can do is provide a slight plug for your lectures at the moment because I have heard, <laughs> heard one of them online and um, it's the um, remind me of the, 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 the sorry the, the what lectures the, the, the whole Sienna at Cambridge does, yeah um, I, I didn't study at Cambridge sorry um, they're terrific. They're on the website of the Cambridge um, Divinity Faculty, and if you're interested in pursuing some of these questions in, in a bit more detail, they're highly stimulating. I think um, because it's 20 to 8, we need to throw the floor open for, for about 15 minutes or so. Thank you. What you're making me uh, think about in your conversation with each other is perhaps what we're trying to do uh, with the Institute of Westminster Abbey, which is, to put it simply, get out more, and, and in a sense not see the conversation as between believers and non-believers, but to see what more spirituality can do for goodness, what it can do to kindle to life what's in the bellies and hearts of people that will nourish and nurture their moral sense, their resilience um, and be absolutely porous to that so the conversation is two ways I, I don't quite know what I'm doing but I do know out of where I'm coming which is an ancient Benedictine foundation and I know that our language has to work very very hard spirituality has to work very very hard to connect to communicate, and it's not at all as if I know something that other people need to hear. It's it's almost as though you turn up and then they say it, uh, and it's quite encouraged. It's it is really hard work though. It feels a little bit as though we're spilling our guts out onto Parliament Square <laughs> amongst people surrounded by people of goodwill who do actually want to make the world a better place, who do want to fulfil their vocation as public servants. Most of them. Um, and the ones who have other motives, well, everyone has mixed motives, but ones who have other, other motives, you don't have to scratch very hard to find that in them. So there's something going on that's, that's, uh, that's deeply spiritual, actually, but it's, it's such a conversation, it's such a two-way porous encounter, and not at all, and also located uh, in this place where people are trying to run the country. Uh, and I... I, I I just have this very strong intuitive sense that's what we must do more of. Understand what a rich tradition we have and give it. Mm. I've enjoyed the book very much and I've enjoyed your talk to both of you this evening, but I'd like to press you a little bit more on biblical criticism. I think the results of biblical criticism are possibly more complicated than you acknowledge. John Meyer, who is a Catholic priest, who is writing The Life of a Marginal Jew, has just produced his fifth volume 
which is on the parables, in which he, and I think, actually, I think I'm convinced by it, he says probably we can be certain that only four of the parables go back to Jesus. But he doesn't see this as a great problem, because you could say that Jesus inspired his followers, his disciples, and then the evangelists, like Luke, for example, that you had this creative outburst, which produced things like the Good Samaritan and the Prodigal Son, which was kind of initiated by Jesus. Now, do you see this as a problem, or is it, is it, does it fit in with your view of what biblical tradition is? No, I, personally, I don't see it as a problem, because... because I, I have a fairly um, Catholic view of Scripture. I, I don't think Rowan was wrong to say my view is also rather liberal. But the, the Catholic thing is important because of the, the um, interlacing of Scripture and tradition. Scripture is tradition and tradition is, is Scripture. So the fact that um, the New Testament contains loose ends is not a big problem for me. The fact that the the the, the oak of um, the Nicene Creed in the fourth century um, was not present from the start, more like a um, some acorns, um, doesn't trouble me in the light of what I believe about the spirit in the church. Just I mean Rowan knows far more about this than I do so I'll hand over to him but I I am um, I have a line here from someone I admire a lot who said, the aim of God's creation is that creation should help make itself. And the scriptures, are humanly written and developed history, riddled with ambiguities and dead ends and fresh starts. Nevertheless, they are powerfully challenging calls to humanity to grow and reform and criticise itself. I think I'm probably rather more conservative than Maya on a number of these things, but I don't lose too much sleep over this because I think the the core question is what's the nature of an event that can make possible this range of fresh responses? And whether you take a more or a less conservative view of the historical accuracy of the Gospels and the ascription of parables to Jesus and Hosanna rather old-fashioned about most of that. But that's not really where the, the burden is. The burden is what is the character of the shift in meaning and understanding generates all this. And that's one of the curious ways in which some kinds of supposedly conservative Christianity turn out to be extremely modern. So fundamentalism is an essentially 19th century invention. It's a reactive formation over against a very tight and um, anxious understanding of factual accuracy or factual um, completeness of description. So once again, you have a competitive relation set up. Who's got it right, the Bible or science or history? Well, the Bible, of course. And that's exactly the standoff we ought not to be having. So I think the idea that broadly, um, not just Catholic, actually, I think Calvin, surprisingly, might have gone along with that if you pressed him. Um, certainly Luther, and probably Hooker. But the Bible is, is a book that's being read, being understood in the community, 
it is in its entirety designed to like, convey the sort of thing God wants you to know for your, your eternal well-being. But what God wants you to know for your eternal well-being is not necessarily the date of the fall of battle. Um, I'd like to ask something about the um, incarnation to Rowan and Rupert, and I hope it uh, will be a good answer from you, because I've already asked you to think about it. Um, thinking about the concept of incarnation, from the point of view of someone who's interested in both um, Christianity and uh, Hinduism, I often think to myself, well, why do we really think that this only happened once? I mean, the authors of the Gospels didn't know what was going on in India, China, and the Americas, and so on and so forth. From a Hindu point of view, it'd be quite normal to think that kind of incarnation, in some sense, does happen quite often. I mean, do you often find, do you sometimes find yourself thinking, well, maybe, maybe it actually happened more than once? <laughs> okay, so how long have we got? <laughs> it's a good question, and I think I'd begin by asking whether the word incarnation, as we use it, is being used in the same way in those two contexts. And I'm not sure it always is. As I understand it, the Hindu claim is something like this. Um, there are lives within history which embody, for their time, crucial aspects of some aspect of the eternal divinity. So there are, what is it, seven major avatars of Vishnu. And that, that makes sense within a particular framework. For this age, for this age, for this age, there are figures... And we're never quite sure if they're mythical or historical, who in some sense um, display the characteristics of the God. In Christian usage, it's not so much about displaying the characteristics of the divine, nor displaying for this particular age. It's more that the very ambitious claims that in this life, the interaction of this life with other lives, the effect of this life, the generative effect of this life, somehow turns history on its axis, hence the once and for all. Which is not saying there's, that there's an awful lot of God in Jesus and rather less in, in Krishna. It's to say the kind of relationship claimed for, argued for, between the infinite and Jesus of Nazareth is without parallel because of the work it has to do within human history as a whole. Not only changes the terms of reference of the Jewish world by opening up the ideas of covenant to another generation, it says the relationship which Israel has been set up to model in the world, the community under covenant held together in justice and so forth, that has now become universal as a result of this event. So, um, it's a, a teasing problem, I think. But I still come back to that sense that the word incarnation is doing the same work in the two contexts. Which is not at all to deny that there are lives outside the Christian framework which manifest something 
extraordinary something, exceptional something, divine. But for this life, because of its action, its generative effect, it makes an odd kind of play. Um, uh, I get it that God is no thing, um, and, and uh, I've enjoyed the discussion around that. But it, it does, the discussion has been quite philosophical, um, which is nice. But as I understand it, what Christianity offers is a highly personal, loving relationship between each of us as individuals and the reality that is God. God is no thing, but God is a reality which offers that personal, loving relationship. And I just wonder, and it seems to me we haven't touched on that, and that's quite important, and I just wonder what you have to say yeah, about I'm that. I'm sorry you, you don't think I've touched on it. It's, um, I was trying to emphasise that very much at the, at the end, for example. But I, I would go back to the beginning myself and say it, it's precisely because God is no thing that God, as Augustine says, can be, can be closer to us than we are to ourselves, um, because God, God is, this is an agent whose agency um, interferes with the agency of others. Yeah, um, I, I agree entirely with that. But I, I take the point. Um, nobody begins their discovery faith with arguments like, like these. But I think it's it's important when once that's got underway that we keep ourselves alert to what I like to call the grammar of what we're talking about. So that my loving relationship with God, in spite of generations of devotional rhetoric, which might suggest otherwise, my loving relationship with God doesn't mean that God then makes a rival bid for my affections with X, Y, and Z. Because of all the stuff that we've been talking about. So that the love I feel for God is bound up with, infuses the love I have for those close to me, for the human race, or whatever. And clarifying a bit about what we do and don't claim about God actually helps us avoid some real elephant traps in, in our moral and spiritual discovery there. Um, I just wanted to ask a question, really. As a Muslim theologian, I, I spent my life sort of struggling with the horror of, of God um, and the, the embracing with honesty and integrity the reality that certainly my uh, scriptural tradition and oral tradition uh, paints a picture of God who is both deeply personal, deeply loving, and also the same kind of God who in Deuteronomy chapter 20, for example, commanded uh, the extermination of large numbers of people um, in other parts of the Old Testament, in the Hebrew Scriptures, enjoying slavery, uh, enjoying the stoning of the contumacious child. That's the personality of God in his, in his fullness. Um, I, I guess from the point of view of integrity, I'm always being challenged, you know, as Muslims, you know, stop, stop cherry-picking the nice bits out of your tradition, and let's talk about the terrorism, which is there in Surah 9-5, about chopping off the heads of unbelievers and so on. Um, I, I guess kind of my, my, my struggle with trying to get to grips with, with and understand uh, and grow up and love my Christian brothers and sisters um, comes out of partly um, what I find to be a rather ambivalent relationship 
particularly that, that, that Christians have with, with what you call the Old Testament, the Hebrew Scriptures. And it's as almost as though you're married to the New Testament. You know, you're married to the New Testament, notwithstanding some of, some of the Pauline uh, um, views of, that are, seem, seem out, of, out, of, out of kilter with our uh, culture. But, but it's, as though, um, it's as though the Old Testament is kind of like more a mistress, and, and people will get into bed with it and, and, and leave it behind when it, when it suits them. And I guess as a Muslim theologian sort of struggling with the horror of, of, of the nasty side of God's personality in my tradition. And, and remember, we, we, consider, we consider the scriptures that are foregoing to be canonical at some level. Um, I, I just, you know, wonder, wonder what, what the, you know, I enjoyed reading the book very much. You know, Rupert's, Rupert's uh, have done a brilliant job on that. But, but I, I, I guess I'm, I'm trying to understand more about the, the horrible God. Um, you know, and just one sorry, one last point. I guess where it comes down to is is our commentaries on the Akedah, the, uh, the, uh, the 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 binding of Isaac, take very much the Christian view that Isaac was acting as as the ultimate utterly obedient child, and and this of course forms a framework for for an understanding of 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 uh, of, uh, of Christology and of, of crucifixion. Um, it's a, it's a, it's an understanding of violence, whereas our Jewish brothers and sisters see see the Akedah very differently and see it as highly problematic and, and Abraham was out of his mind and, and you're, you're, you're serving God best when you disobey him. So, I, sorry, it's a very rambling question, but I just yeah. wondered what you had to say. Thank you. Thank you. Um, so on your last question, um, the last bit of your question, my, my sense is that actually Jewish theologians argue a lot about precisely the, the voluntary nature of Isaac's finding. And on the one hand, it's used as a legitimation of the temple sacrifice system, because you have a willing victim. On the other hand, as you say, there's a rabbinic um, traditional register which says you ought to have argued. Um, very typical, I think, of the way Jews handle Jewish scripture. But you, you've posed, I think, a, a really serious question, which it's important to answer because what the casual reader, if there are any in Scripture, will come across sooner or later is that, that nightmare figure. Um, and not only in Jewish Scripture, but also in bits of the book of Revelation. A couple of things I want to say to that. First is, again, to ask how are we going to contextualize scripture, both in its writing and in its reading. That scripture contains examples of appalling human behavior and projections onto God of appalling divine behavior has to be read within the flow, if you like, of the entire narrative. What is the centre towards which these stories are pulled back? And the example I've used again and again is the way in which in um, Kings, Jehu's revolt against the house of Ahab is clearly meant to be a great heroic triumph of orthodoxy against corruption, whereas in the prophecy of Hosea, a couple of centuries later, it's clearly regarded as, as a hideous example of bigotry and bloodshed. So, you know, within just a few books, perspective shifting. So, scripture, Jewish and Christian, 
has arguments within itself about these things, and one can't simply say there is, you know, God, God has his bad days. There's an argument which moves in a certain direction in Scripture. That's one thing. Um, and I think the other point I want to make is how to put this. Of course, we speak of God in terms of our own psychology, what we can understand. And there are moments when what we project onto God is the destructive shadow in ourselves. We imagine that God reflects back to us the worst we're capable of. I would quite like to slaughter and disembowel my enemies. I'm a righteous person, so presumably God would like to as well. And that, that's part of the, again, um, the psychology we bring to this. What is so interesting and so challenging, I think, about the scriptural record, back to the self-critical thing, is that it never seems content to leave it there. You, you read a page of bloodthirsty ranting and turn over, and the prophet or the chronicler or somebody say, well, you know, actually, that's not it. And the actually that's not it moment is, is the one I think we often fail to attend to. Now, I, I wouldn't presume to um, explore how that applies in the Islamic context, but as, as you recognize, some of the same issues do arise there. And there's um, an equal question as to what the, the critical energy is that draws you back to a center in reading the sacred text. I can understand how there is an intellectual coherence that's going to appeal to people who like to understand the world, the world in poetic terms, that you're presenting of God as no thing. Um, but what about those people who might sympathise with the German translator and like to understand the world much more about in, in sort of nuts and bolts terms? Are those the people that perhaps Dawkins is appealing to on the one hand and fundamentalist Christianity is appealing to on the other? that um, contemporary Christian theologians of a more uh, sort of reputable strand need, need to appeal to. How is that going to be done? Yeah, nice, yeah, no, nice easy one to, to end on. Um, I mean, I, I don't know if you've had a chance to, to see the book, but the last thing I would claim is that Christians get it right. And there's, there's a problem in the, the broader culture uh, pinpointed by Rowan when he spoke about um, Ian Gilchrist's wonderful book, The, the Master and, and His Emissary, which is a, a diagnosis is very broadly speaking of, of left and right brained approaches to the world. One, the, the former being more concerned with uh, problem solving, and, and the latter with the, the, um, the more elusive but equally important grasp of the, the big picture. And I think what what Rowan said is so true about the the um, rather part uh, understanding of of truth. The, the idea, since the early modern age, that um, you know tr- truth is something that you establish in a in a test tube. Um, it's uh, I think way back in his ethics, Aristotle was saying. Um, that uh, 
it's it's the mark of a juvenile to think that that all all of truth can um, be um, all be worked out in a in a sort of mathematical context, in a sort of ma- mathematical style of reasoning. And um, ethics, for example, is different. You have to you have to grow into it. You you have to un- understanding that there are different levels of, of truth is is part of um, growing up, if you like. Um, but I I would just add that. Um, Christians themselves need to be, and Muslims, Jews, others need, need to show due tentativeness. I mean, it's it's precisely because of what we believe about God that we should be very careful, as I hope has emerged in this conversation, of thinking that we can refract a um, light of divine revelation, um, you know, in a in a completely sort of um, unmediated way. So there's a challenge to religious believers. There's a challenge to the broader culture. I should just point out that Ian McGilchrist, who is an extraordinary polymath, I think of a psychiatrist, a historian, <coughs> literary critic, he said after The Master in Zen Street came out that, that it was a highly theological book, but that he, he didn't dare say this to his academic colleagues because they wouldn't bother to read it. Well, no, I, I hope it's become um, it started to become clear this evening that, that uh, Rowan and I, I think others feel that, that something important is is being missed here. Very quick comment. Um, having discussed with Richard Hawkins on a number of occasions, one of the things that strikes me is that he has a remarkable sensitivity to the life of the imagination, that um, he shares my passion for Bach, (laughs) and is able to write with immense imaginative force about the beauty and extraordinariness of the created order, or what I would call the created order. Um, And I remember a poignant moment in one debate where he more or less said, why do you spoil it all by bringing God in? And I... I took that seriously because part of what he was saying was isn't isn't the remarkable quality and depth and beauty of the world enough? Why complicate it with this extra? And the answer I wish I'd been able to make is would you say that it complicates the beauty of the St. Matthew Passion to say what was actually composed by J.S. Bach? <laughs> is that a complication or is it just... But the point I'm, I'm driving at is that if what we think about human beings broadly right, there's something that is hungry for the intuitive, the imaginative, the creative, which is going to come out somewhere. Um, It's not as if we can therefore boil down complex and mysterious ideas into neat problem-solving packages because that's all people are capable of. That underrates, I think, the seriousness of people, including people like Richard Dawkins. So I don't mind trying to keep it a bit difficult and a bit poetic at times. Um, my, my less appreciative readers will, I think, know exactly what I mean. But I, I really don't try and make it difficult to do it. Um, 
But there, there is that about what we're talking about, which requires taking time. I, I believe we have to, to wrap up now, but uh, thank you all very, very much. Thank you. Thank you for joining us for this London Review Bookshop event. For more, visit our website at www.londonreviewbookshop.co.uk or search for the London Review Bookshop on iTunes.